Hope Church. And uh, we're going to continue our study um, through the Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter 5. And today we'll look at verses 38 through 48. So it's not a long passage, but it is a very important passage. It's an often, I think, very misunderstood passage. And it's very important that we get this passage right. Um, it's, it's really, really important as followers of Jesus that we understand Matthew 5, 43 through 48, and what Jesus has to teach us about loving our neighbors and interacting in a world that is often uh, not loving. And so uh, we're going to look at that uh, this morning. Just as a reminder, Jesus has already talked about um, you know, the, the attitudes that a follower of Jesus should have. That's what he begins with. And so that's his introduction, and then he's continuing this theme. And so last week, as we looked into things that Jesus talked about related to having the attitude or the character of being pure in heart, um, he talked about sexual sins. He talked about letting our yes be yes and our no be no um, and those sorts of things. So um, in the way that Jesus is doing this, he has this pattern, uh, this pattern that we've talked about that we see consistent throughout this message is you've heard it said, and there he's going to say something in the Old Testament law or something that is the cultural you know, perception of the time. And so it's the common way of thinking. And he's going to say, but I say to you, and he's going to raise the bar and, and give us something higher to strive for. And then he's going to give a series of things that are directly related to that higher bar because he wants to show us, practically speaking, how to accomplish his teachings. He doesn't just say, I want you to do this and then move on to the next thing. But he tells us very specifically ways that we can go about you know, having a pure heart. Ways that we can go about you know, honoring our word. Uh, and so now uh, he gets in this next section. And we'll, let's read it and we'll pray and we're going we're gonna to take it uh, a little bit slow this morning on it because it's important we get it right. But let's begin in verse 38. He says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. And give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. For if you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and bless those who curse you and do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and send rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even tax collectors do so. Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Let's pray. Father, we desire uh, to be more like you. Help us to understand your word and to apply it. We know Though that without you completely transforming our hearts through your son Jesus, uh, we have no hope of really living these things out in any sort of consistent way. So Jesus, we thank you that you went to the cross for us, 
that you died for us, that you rose from the dead, and that you had victory over sin and death. And that because you had victory and have given us life, those who believe in you can live in victory and can follow your teachings, dear Jesus. Help us to truly believe this morning that we can do what you have asked us to do. And help us to follow you. And we ask it in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so back to verse 38. When Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Where was that heard you know, from? Well, that was heard in the, in the Old Testament law. Um, not just in one place. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But it's in Le- Leviticus 24, Exodus 21, and Deuteronomy 19. So we got it there three times. Uh, in the, the books of Moses. Um, now, what's interesting is that Jesus stops before he gets the life to the life you know, part. Um, but um, that's not such a huge focus for us this morning. What he's basically saying is, you know, you know this is the standard. And even that standard, we need to see it and appreciate it for what it is. Because it's a powerful standard, and it's different than what the world says and what the world has to offer. Because most of us, in general, are not content. In our human flesh, we are not content for an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. You know, we see kids on the playground. If they get into a fight, how does it start? Well, one kid gives the other kid a little bit of a shove. Now, does the, other, does the kid that was shoved come back with an, an equal force of shove? You know, no, it's usually a harder shove, and that goes back and forth until, you know, they start swinging. And, and it's basically, it's like, well, if, if you punch me once, I'm going to punch you twice, right? If you come at me with your fist, I'm going to come at you with a bat or a weapon of some sort. If you come at me with one weapon, I'm going to come at you with a bigger weapon. And that is the human nature of it. Not content just for, to have an equal reckoning, not to have a true justice, but we always want more. And so this was a radical teaching for the sinful human hearts to stop at what was even, to stop at what was equal, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But then Jesus comes along and he says that he has something even higher for us. He says, but I tell you, and this is his higher standard, not to resist an evil person. Now, I believe that what is implicit here and implied in here, because, you know, this eye for eye, tooth for tooth, it takes force, right? It takes force if one eye has been removed to take out the other person's eye or to take out the other person's tooth. You think about taking out a tooth, that takes a lot of of physical force in order to, to do that. And so he does give, I believe here, ways of, challenging situations and ways of giving resistance that are not dependent on force, that are not dependent on violence for violence. He said, don't respond with that violence in the same you know, way. And so it's a, it's a path, you know, we can call it a path of non-resistance, but I think it might be more accurate as we, as we study this to see it's a, it's a path of resistance by non-violent means. And so in the world's eyes, it is non-resistance, but it has an, oftentimes has an effect or an accomplishing of actually changing and resisting a situation. But we're not to take, supposed to take a direct path, a direct path or purpose of 
resistance through force, through violence, violence for violence. So then Jesus is going to give us practical ways of dealing with this evil person. What are practical ways of dealing with an evil person in your life? So here's some practical ways. First one is, he says, whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. Okay, and so we, got to, we have to see uh, a couple of things here that are important. And we have to understand in this section, each one of these things, they're, they're cultural, there's a cultural deal here that you have to understand if you're going to understand these verses properly. If you take them out of their cultural context and just try to apply it to every, any and every situation, you're going to, I think, miss the boat and could potentially do a lot of damage to people's lives. Okay, so let's understand a couple of things. And I think this is also, this, this one on the, the strike in the cheek is better with just a physical illustration. So I'm going to ask Marcus to come up here for a second because um, I'm not going to hit Marcus. I'm going to sh- illustrate um, what is going on in this scenario that is important for us to see. So this is, is the right cheek. Of Marcus and Jesus is very specific to use the right cheek. He doesn't just say a cheek. So there's a slap here or a strike that's involved. Now, how can I hit his right cheek? What are my options? Well, I can use my left hand, but there's a problem using my left hand because the left hand is a hand in the culture. It's a hand of dishonor. Okay, there's a hand of honor and there's a hand of dishonor. Okay, and so you use, you're going to use your right hand, but to strike his right cheek, I can't use the open palm like Jesus was struck. It says Jesus, it says Jesus was struck with the, open, with the palm by the soldiers at his trial. Okay, if I'm going to strike him on the right cheek, I can't use my palm. I have to use the back of my hand like so. And what is this? This is not... To, to, you know, gravely injure him, but it is to disrespect him. It is in, in a situation of a court of a, or around public people for, or a public place for one person to show their superiority and their dominance over another individual. And so that's the striking using the back of the right hand to his right cheek. And then when Jesus says for Marcus to turn his other cheek, now he's turned to me the left cheek. Now what are my options here? Okay, now I I have to use and show that I am abusing my power and position by striking him with the open hand. And it's a direct act of violence at that point for everyone to see. Or I have to use the hand of dishonor, again, showing that I'm abusing my power and I don't care about the cultural norms as much as I do about showing my power over the situation and over this individual. It makes the person who's doing the striking look bad. Okay, and so this is a way, you can have a seat, Marcus, thank you. This is a, a way that, that Jesus is, is using here, and it has to do with this particular striking and dishonor. It doesn't have to do with somebody just getting beat down. 
you know, your kid's getting beat down on the playground. You know, he's in middle school and he gets beat down. You don't necessarily, you can't use this specifically and say, well, son, tomorrow go and just say, beat me down again, please. You know, you're, that's, I, I think that's asking, first of all, it, it's, you know, someone who has power to defend themselves, asking somebody that doesn't have power to defend themselves to take another beating. If Jesus wants you to take a beating, you know, you can take a beating for yourself, but, you know, don't force your kid to take a beating and use this verse to justify it. You know, that's not what's going on here. And, and, it's, to, and it's not to say that we ever hey, say, hey, I have a right not to be beaten. You even see the Apostle Paul, yeah, to use two illustrations. One, you have the Apostle Paul, who, when he's beaten in Philippi, won't leave the city until he receives an apology for the Romans, from the Roman officials because they beat him without a trial. And he says that's against the law. And he uses his position to what? To protect other followers of Jesus in the same scenarios that you can't just beat people without a trial. You have to go through the process. And so he's holding them accountable to their own law, to their own standards. Whatever those may be in a culture, he has the right to hold them to that standard that they have set for themselves in the Roman government. So that's a place clearly where Paul is saying, you know, you can't just beat me because you want to beat me. Now, he obviously at the same time, though, he was beaten numerous times. He's willing to take a beating for Jesus. Never once do you see him fight back physically. Stephen, you don't see him use violence to fight back, to you know, pick up a stone that was thrown at him when he's being martyred to throw it back. Jesus... When he goes, you know, he takes as a lamb before the, you know, his, the shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Why? Because there was a, why in those situations was that response? Because what was at stake was high enough and was worth suffering for. Because those are directly related to the gospel. And what's interesting Interesting, in the entire New Testament, and really in the entire first couple of centuries of the church, you can't find followers of Jesus using violence to defend themselves. They will at times use the law to say this isn't just, but they never once repay in kind that you have, certainly not in the scriptures, do you have any recorded you know, we're going to fight back using violence for violence. But these are things that are related also. We have to understand the context. These are things related to the gospel and being willing to suffer for Jesus. In more modern times, you had, you know, missionaries, Jim Elliott and, and his friends, you know, Nate Saint and others who went to the Aka um, Indians, or indigenous, I shouldn't say that, which is the indigenous people, and they went there. Um, you know, to share the gospel, and they had, you know, done a lot of preliminary work to try to establish a rapport. And they landed their, their plane in there on the river, um, and they were, you know, with the intent to share the gospel, and they were, they were martyred. They were, they were killed, okay? They had a rifle with them. They could have defended 
themselves, but they didn't. Why? Because they viewed that the lives of those people, all as, as, a, as an entire people, that, that it was more important that the door would still be open to share the gospel with them. And they, I think they, they understood and they knew that if they justly defended themselves and defended their own lives, that the cost would be too great because it would close the door for the gospel, potentially for generations among that people group. So they were willing to die for the name of Jesus. And as followers of Jesus, if we're serious about being followers of Jesus, Jesus says to his disciples, you know, people will kill you and think that they do a service for God. If we're serious about following Jesus, we need to be serious about following him to the point of being willing to die for him. To have our families die for him. For the name of the gospel. Like that should be. I'm not saying it always is for me. But it should be. How willing we are going for the sake of the gospel. But that is different. There is a difference in that. And somebody is... You know, has guns on your children because they want your wallet. Okay, that's a different scenario. And you can't make one automatically go to the other and say, well, it was wrong to defend, you know, this father of Jesus who, you know, used force to defend his children's lives from, you know, a home invasion was wrong. I don't think you can say that using that, using this, this passage. At the same time, we do have to take Jesus' words very seriously. And what that, I mean, at the very minimum, we should be able to look at Jesus' words and say, even if I'm in a situation where it has nothing to do with the gospel, even if it's a situation where I need to use a, at least a certain amount of, of force to preserve life, that I do so with regret. I do so with, this is the last you know, option that I feel that is available at my disposal. As opposed to this is the first, you know, this is what I, or or my heart's desire. And this is really the issue of, I think, the issue of the heart. Because I think in our heart, oftentimes if we're truthful, our desire is violence to those who have done violence. That that's our heart. That it needs to change. That we wouldn't want violence as, you know, like that shouldn't be like first in our thoughts and our minds and our hearts. You know, it's a, even in a self-defense scenario, it's an option of last resort. And it's done with, at the end of it's all said and done, it's with tears and with regret. Dietrich Bonhoeffer um, had this sort of thought, you know, with, with Hitler when he felt like there was no other option, you know, and he participated in the plot to assassinate Hitler. And I think we, could, we may disagree with him, but he had looked at these words so seriously of Jesus that he, feel like, he felt like participating in that he had betrayed the teachings of Jesus and that he had disqualified himself from ministry. You know, it was a last resort and it was with regret, you know, that he participated, you know, in that plot to attempt to eliminate, you know, a person responsible 
for so much evil. And if that's his response to someone who had done that much evil, you know, what should our response be, you know, in situations where we're offended or we have our feelings hurt? Or, you know, someone has spoken poorly about us and in our minds we're like, I got to punch them in the throat. You know, I mean, you know, that's that's what we think, right? You know, like first, you know, that's all, oftentimes our first thought and Jesus doesn't want us to have that. But we have seen that, you know, a, a response of nonviolence and which is really meekness. It's a restrained strength. It's saying I could fight back in some way. I could. I might not be able to win, but I could inflict some damage. But I'm not going to do that. Does often result in positive results. I mean, and, and we've seen that from Gandhi to MLK Jr. You know, and other scenarios in our in our world that have illustrated. That, that there is power in meekness. That there is power in not responding in kind. And there is power in not giving justification for the violence of another. Because what happens is, you know, violence starts, and then when that's responded to with violence, the people who are originally violent then feel justified in the violence that they originally... And then from then on, it's just, well, we're just paying them back. And so there is a wisdom in what Jesus is teaching here. And also with his followers, he knows in this world, they're not going to have the power. They're going to be a minority of people. And what's the best way for them to navigate in it? You know, and this is contrary to the ideas of the times because there are certain groups who are wanting to take up arms. And at times are trying to, you know, revolt against the Roman Empire. But God, you know, in his wisdom, knows that the way to change the Roman Empire isn't, you know, to take up swords, you know, of steel, but to take up the sword of the word of God, to go forward with the gospel to see hearts changed, to see hearts changed. And that's what we want to see as well. And so let's go on with what he says here, because again, we have to take him seriously as he speaks. And I, and I in no way want to, I don't, we can't abuse what he says, but we also can't remove the power from what he says and the responsibility that we have from what he says. And then, because he, he continues, if, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. So again, this is a legal situation. A legal situation. Somebody wants to sue you and take away your tunic. And this happened in Old Testament times. And this tunic, this is the, the undergarment. And somebody could hold that for security. But now this cloak is the outer, outer garment. And in the Old Testament law, a person was not allowed to hold that. Why? Because it's cold at night, and you need it in order to stay warm so a person doesn't freeze to death. Okay? 
Now, so what is Jesus saying? Now, imagine the scenario. The person is sued, so the undergarment is, you know, taken from them. Now, what do they have on if they give the cloak to? Nothing. In front of everybody. Naked. Nothing on. Now, what's interesting, and we know this, we know this from the Old Testament, we know this with Noah and his sons, that it's not the nakedness that's the shame, but the one who's in shame is the one who uncovers that nakedness. Does that make sense? The one who causes the other person to be naked is the one who has the shame. And so in this scenario, again, the person who's using their power over another ends up being embarrassed in front of all. It's kind of like humiliation cuts both ways. It's like if you're, you know, the person without the power is humiliated, but then it turns around and the person with the power is humiliated. Again, is used. Next thing, verse 41. Now, this is a different law because this is a Roman law. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. So Roman soldiers at this time could compel you know, an Israelite, a Hebrew person, here, you're going to carry my pack for one mile. They could not compel the person to go any further than that. That's what they considered a reasonable duty. Carry this pack one mile, and then you can walk a mile back to whatever you were doing. Now, so what happened in this scenario is that many, um, many Israelites, you know, they'd have their children, you know, looking around the corners of, you know, in the streets. Hey, here comes, uh, you know, Roman garrison. And they'd let everybody know. Men would all run. Same thing in the fields. They'd leave their tools behind. They'd scatter. And then once the Romans had passed, they'd come back to do their work. So you can imagine with that atmosphere, what is that doing? It's hatred breeding hatred. The Roman soldiers hate the Hebrews more. The Hebrews hate the Romans more. It's a, it's a conflicting thing, right? So Jesus says, you know, he doesn't, want, he doesn't want his followers participating in that sort of thing. But this is interesting. When he says... Go and take the pack two miles. What's happening here? Because that's against the law. The Roman soldier can only compel the dude for one mile. Now he's concerned. He could potentially get in trouble with his superior officer if the superior officer recognizes, hey, this dude has carried further than what he's legally obligated to do. So they're changing the dynamic on that. But even if not, if you remove that element, for the sake of argument, if you just remove that element away, it at minimum causes that Roman soldier to ask why. And what's the, what's the reason? Well, I follow a teacher. I follow a teacher named Jesus. And Jesus taught, has taught us as his disciples. We are his disciples and he has taught us to love our enemies. So I love you. What does that do to a Roman soldier's heart? What, is, what, is that, what, is, what does that sort of thing do to a heart of stone? It breaks it down. It softens it. 
Jesus has bigger things at stake than just our pride. Because in each one of these scenarios, to do it the way Jesus wants us to do it, to to handle conflict the way Jesus wants us to handle it, we have to be meek. Again, that's restrained strength. And our pride has to diminish. I mean, imagine our lives, if you could for a minute, imagine our lives without pride. Without the sin of pride. Without the sin of having to be right all the time. Without the sin of having to be, you know, in the position, in the good position all the time. But to be okay, understanding that you're made in the image of God and your value comes from God and not from other people. Understanding that your value comes because Jesus died on the cross from you and not the evaluation of others or the power that others can lord over you. And so that, that human pride to say, to say, I am good enough or I am valuable enough gets stripped away because we've already got that taken care of. Our identity is in Jesus. So we imagine a life where you don't need the, the validation of others. You just need the approval of God for your actions. How does that change things? How does it change conflicts? I just need the approval of God and I don't need to win. I don't need the approval or the validation from other human beings. I've already received that from my Creator. How does that change things? It's a radical way that Jesus wants us to live, and it's designed to remove away our, our selfishness. It's even in verse 42, and for me, I think this is the hardest verse in here. But he says, give to him who asks of you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. And you know all the things that you're holding on to in life, your rights, your, your power, your authority, all the things that you either hold on to or want to have, that you are jealous because somebody else has it. And you know, you don't want to, I mean, most people don't want to just be treated even as everybody else. You know, most people, even if they're in a lower position, want to be in the higher position. Why? Because then you can do what? Get even or more, at, at minimum, an eye for an eye. But Jesus is telling us to put those things away from us. And to even hold what we are fighting so hard to obtain in this world, these possessions that we think bring us happiness. He's saying to hold them with open hands. Not to treat it as your own. And that's hard. But again, imagine a life free from needing the next thing in order to be satisfied. Imagine a life where truly, with food and with clothing, you are content. I mean, there's been only, there's a handful of people ever walked the earth, actually been content with just their daily bread and a simple setup. Very few people. But imagine the freedom that comes with that. When you get out of the 
I've always got to have one more. I've always got to have the newest. I've always got to have the next. It's kind of funny because if you think about it, I remember the first iPhone came out and people were crazy to get this iPhone. Now I got iPhone 10 coming out and like a thousand dollars. Okay. But now go send somebody an original iPhone. Go ahead, number one iPhone, and say, This is your phone. Well, if they've had iPhone, that iPhone, if they've had iPhone 3, 4, 5, 6, whatever, you go hand that original iPhone that they were the most stoked to receive day one. And he said, Here's your iPhone. Man, get that garbage out of here. And throw it back in your face. Even as a gift. Throw it back in your face. I mean, and it just shows, you know, what we wanted so badly to get our hands on. Most of the time, man, that's temporary. It was a temporary feel good. And so we could free ourselves from those desires. It certainly would make life a lot more simple. I'm not saying I have that figured out because I don't. But I, I am saying we need to take the words of Jesus here seriously. Imagine if the church of Jesus was generous to the point that it could be. How different would our world be? You know, when... Um, friend of mine in another church was going to be preaching on Acts 6, and it's my favorite passage, so I was like, hey, I got some notes. Here, have some notes. Um, and I love that passage because it has to do with the widows, the Hellenistic, the, the Greek-speaking you know, Jewish people who had been living in other lands largely, um, and their widows are being neglected in the distribution of the food. And we see the church's solution for that is they transfer power and they have, you know, the seven men who have great character, who love God first and foremost, but they're all Greek speakers. They're all from that group. And they say, okay, you be in charge over everything for everybody because we know we're not, you're not going to abuse it because they knew their character. They weren't going to do an eye for an eye. Well, now we'll take care of ours and hurt yours. And if you think about that testimony, because what it says then is that the word of God spreads like wildfire, like in terms of people coming to faith in Jesus. And it even says that, you know, and it's really tied to that event, that even then many of the leading priests become followers of Jesus, those who have been so antagonistic to the faith to that point. And if that had been the consistent Work of the church, the consistent work of missionaries throughout the world from that point forward, there wouldn't be a people group without the gospel today. There wouldn't be, you know, an, an island where they haven't heard about Jesus yet. Because what we have to understand is that when we're prideful, if we ever think, 
I'm better than or mine are better than theirs. Those are hindrances to the gospel. But also our materialism, in this case, we look at it here. How many missionaries have come back from the field because there hasn't been the support? How many times has the gospel been hindered from going further because there's just not money for the fuel or for the bike for the dude or for whatever it is that is needed? And we have to understand that our pride, that any of our mess hinders the gospel. You know, when we look back at the previous chapters, the, uh, you know, the adultery, yes, that obviously hinders the gospel in a very obvious and dramatic way. So does lust. It hinders the gospel. When the yes is not a yes and the no is not a no, it hinders the gospel. When we try to react to violence with violence, it hinders the gospel. Just tell you one, because you all know him, you know, Abel and my dad was there when this happened. They were in a, a village, a small little place up in the mountains. And this man who was drunk came and grabbed Abel by the throat and put him up against the wall and held him there. Perfectly reasonable for a get-off-me punch, right? Like, move that arm and punch the guy in the face and get out of there. Perfectly reasonable self-defense. But he stood there calmly, and others prayed. And then a couple men from the village came and took the man's hands off and took him away. And the door for the gospel in that place was opened. Whereas it might have been hindered if violence had been met with violence. And so God has this different way for us to interact in our world because God, God is not unaware of the violence. God is not unaware of the injustice of it all. God knows and he has a different way for us to maneuver, to live and to act in these cultures, in these scenarios. And if a poor Hebrew can follow seriously the teachings of Jesus and this scenario where he's small in his own culture and he's dominated by another culture, Certainly, you and I, in whatever scenario we find ourselves in, can also follow the way of Jesus. We can do it. It's not an impossible ask. It's certainly possible with the power of Jesus Christ at work within us. So then he says this in verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Okay, let's stop for one second here. When he said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, I've looked through the Old Testament. I can find love your neighbor. I cannot find the words. Maybe you can find them, but I haven't been able to find them yet. 
that say, hate your enemy. Haven't been able to find them. So where does this come from? It comes from the culture saying, the scripture tells us to love our neighbor. Like, we get that, but they're looking at neighbor in a very, like, close way. Like, immediate neighbors of the same language and ethnicity and God and everything else. These are our neighbors. We ask, who's your neighbor? They're not talking about the Roman garrison five miles away. That's not their neighbor. That's not how the people in this time are thinking about it. And they think they're justified to hate their enemy. In their times, they're thinking back to the Old Testament victories over other nations and using that, I think, to justify their nationalism, justify their perspective about who their neighbors are. So their view is, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. We can find four things about hate in the Old Testament. We find, you can all your Old Testament references about hate, I think you can put in these four categories. If you've got to find another category, again, I'd, I'd love to see it. But these are four categories that I have found. One is those who hate God. That's a category of hate that you find in the Old Testament. A second one is those who hate God's people. Those who hate followers of Yahweh. Okay, you can find those in the Old Testament. You can find those whom God hates because of their wickedness. Now again, God can hate a person because of their wickedness, because you know God. Scripture is pretty clear as you read the Old Testament. God hates the wicked, but that's not transferred to us to be able to do that. Why? Because God is pure and holy and good and right and knows all. We're not. We're not. And then you have deeds that God hates. False worship. Is one of them. Reading in Malachi chapter 2. We were reading in Malachi chapter 2 this week. And it says, you know, God, God hates it. And the people are surprised when they go to the, the men are surprised when they go to the temple. And their, their prayers are not heard. Because they have forgotten. The man has forgotten the wife of his youth and has treated her poorly. And he wonders and is surprised why God does not hear his prayers. Peter says the same thing. God's not listening to that mess. God's not listening to a dude that doesn't treat his wife well. There are things that God hates. God hates a lying tongue. You know, I think it's, we can safely say today, God hates human trafficking. God hates kidnapping. God hates murder. God hates rape. God hates these things. God hates them. Stronger than a dislike for he hates them. And that can be hard for us to hear and understand, but I want you to understand what's the attitude of our hearts sometimes. We say, I hate. And then someone's name or some group of people or whatever. And we're told by God, by Jesus here, not to do that. That's not our role. That's not within our sphere of justice or authority or power or those things in a, in a right relationship with God. That's not for us. It's just not. 
And even though the scriptures tell us in the Old Testament about God's hatred, you know, again, hatred for the wicked, why? You know, we say, well, that sounds really harsh. Well, I mean, God is saying this because these people are murdering. These people are sacrificing children on an altar. Yet God's anger and wrath is kindled against those who do such things. What would we think of a God who who didn't care about that? It's kind of interesting on that side. It's like we accuse God for his righteousness, but we would accuse him more if he wasn't. We accuse God for his, for his statements about justice, but we'd accuse him more if he wasn't. But God has, a, has for us a radical teaching. We are given through Jesus, the Son of God, that we are to love our enemies. Now, this doesn't necessarily, I don't believe here, even with the word that's used, I don't necessarily mean this is like an emotional, affectionate, like my friend sort of love. No, this is a, a moral. I want what's best for this person or these people sort of love. It's a removal of revenge. It's a removal for a desire of revenge. And it's in place of we want what's best. And what do we, what's, what's best for the wicked? Well, what's best is repentance, right? And to come into right relationship with God and to live right. And then maybe then through all that, that changes from a moral love to an emotional, affectionate love. That should change at that point. But there's a moral love that we are obligated to have, even for our enemies, that those who would call themselves our enemies. And really, I, mean, I think the scripture we should see clearly from the teachings of Jesus, that if someone is our enemy, it's not because we've made them our enemy, it's because they've made themselves enemies of us. That they are the ones who, who are set on that being the conditions of the relationship. That in no way would we ever want to be anyone's enemies. That would not be the desire of our heart. It also does not mean that we are to love in any form or fashion the wickedness of our enemies. There is our truth and a reality to love, that moral love, for the sinner, but to hate the sin. So the person that is committing the heinous act of human trafficking, we can love with a moral love that desires their best, that desires for them to to turn from their wickedness and to believe in Jesus and to have a changed heart, a changed life, and to begin doing good in this world. And at the same time, we have a hatred toward the actions. We have a hatred of the sin. But so much more, we should have that perspective about our own selves. 
love yourself, but hate the sin that you do. Hate the sin that corrupts the house of God, the temple of God that you and I are, if we're followers of Jesus. And so what are the practical applications? How do you actually love your enemies? Bless those who curse you. That's powerful. Bless those who curse you. Imagine, next time somebody curses you in any form or fashion, they say a curse word towards you, or they just say something terrible to you or about you, what if we practice, God bless you. I hope you have a wonderful day, sir. Well, in Romans um, chapter 12... Yeah, this mark, but Romans chapter 12, we see Paul give us these instructions. He says, in verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. These are you know, going right off of this teaching. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Just one note there. In any situation of injustice, we know one or two things, that the vengeance is God's. What does that mean? I don't have to repay, because one of two things is the result of every situation, every every conflict on this earth. Either the individual who has committed the acts of wickedness will pay for those wickedness themselves at the hands of God and God's vengeance in an eternal judgment. That's one scenario number one. Two, or that it will be accounted on what Jesus did at the cross where he paid and suffered the wrath of God for those sins just like he did for my sins. So... It's going to be taken care of one of those two ways. Those are the only two ways that it can be taken care of. And that I maintain my character and purity before God. Those are my two, as a follower of Jesus, the scriptures instructs us that those are our two viable options. Yes, your flesh has other options. But in order to respond in a way that pleases God and doesn't violate your character as a follower of Jesus... Your only two options are those that, like, that's the scenario. And what that means is your only option is to leave it in God's hands. That's your only option. In the ultimate sort of sense. Okay? But he says this, verse 20, Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in, in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So this proverb, this Old Testament proverb that's quoted about giving your enemy food and drink. And then it says, heap coals of fire on his head. We know, actually, it's interesting because the Hebrews were in Egypt. There was a custom in Egypt where when people wanted to show 
their repentance from having hurt another person or having done something that they felt was wrong, they would literally put a coals in a pan and put that pan on their head and would be very hot and it would create discomfort. And they would go to the other person's house and be on their knees in front of their house with their coals on their head. Okay? Saying, forgive me. So this is, you know, some people have, you know, taken that passage and been kind of like, ha ha, get to put coals on their head. It's like, no, that's not what's going on here. Because our goal as followers of Jesus is higher than that. We don't want just um, for a person to, to be dealt with in terms of an of a equal eye for eye, tooth for tooth justice. No, we want the person to be brought to the place of repentance and of life and heart change that is ultimately everlasting. That's our desire. And so that's why we want to give food to our enemies and drink to our enemies. And to, as Jesus says here, bless those who curse you. Do good for those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. had a conversation online with, um, with people I don't know, but it was about a, one of these subjects that's in the news a lot today. And one per- person yesterday responded with such a gross, like just disgusting, hateful words towards other human beings in our world. And you know the response of the flesh is, well, you're scum. You know, that's the response of the flesh. It's just, if that's how you think about other human beings, well, you're scum. And so, because that person dehumanizes other people, then we end up dehumanizing the dehumanizer. Y'all get where I'm going with that, right? And so then, you know, we end up in this deal while now we've got nobody's human anymore. And then we just say whatever we want about whoever we want, whenever we want, however we want. And so as I was reading this and thinking about this, it's like, God wants me to bless this person in my comment back. Well, that's not what I want to do. But is responding in kind going to change anything? Is that, am I going to convince this person to view other people as human beings that are different than them? Am I going to get that person to view those other individuals as human beings by yelling back at her and by calling her names. Nah, it's just going to dig her heels in, just entrench her position. And maybe sometimes this way of Jesus doesn't soften a heart and doesn't change a heart either. But it sure has a lot better chance. And God still is going to take care of it. See, that's the part where we have to release 
and let go and say, God, you know, and you're going to handle it. So I can let it go in your hands. The more personal is, you know, this person I've never met, I've never seen, and so that's, you know, but the more personal is, the harder I think that is to do. The more in your face it is, the closer it is, the harder it is to do. But this is what Jesus asked her to do. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And then he says this. Why? That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. See, this is God's mercy and his grace as he gives opportunity for people to understand who he is. You know, and he takes care of them, even providing for their needs. And God is good in this way. Now you say, well, wait a second, wait a second. What about in Egypt where God calls the good stuff to happen on the Hebrews' land and the judgment came? Well, okay, there's a couple things there. One, it's a specific you know, act of judgment not in the general that we are dealing with here on an everyday basis. So those are specific judgments because of specific wickedness of 400 and some years of slavery. So that's God's judgment. And in that judgment still, there was an opportunity for any Egyptian to see the judgment of God and say, forgive me. I'm a sinner. But verse 46, 47, 48, let's finish this. For if you love those who love you, what report have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so. So when he says this, you love those who love you. I mean, we all love those who love us. It's very rare for you to hate a person who's just always trying to love on you. So, you know, he's saying, and, and the tax collectors, again, these are, you know, people who are viewed in the culture as traitors because they work for the Roman government. And a lot of times they're extorting, they're, they're getting themselves rich off of their, you know, fellow Hebrew people by taking more than they should. So they're, they're viewed kind of as, you know, and they were. I mean, they were doing bad. And so if Jesus is basically saying, I mean, bad people do the same thing here that you do. Like, if you just do the same thing they do, how are you better than them? What's your standard? If you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? And so here it's, it's, it's this idea of that narrow definition of neighbor that his, you know, that his audience had been taught to adhere by in their lives, to look out for their own, those who were just like them. And Jesus is saying, you got to put that aside. you got to put your classism. You want to be my disciple? you got to put your classism away. You want to be my disciple? you got to put your nationalism away. He's already said here, you want to be my disciple? you got to put your materialism away. You want to be my disciple, you've got to put your hatred away. 
You want to be my disciple? You've got to put your lust away. You've got to put your adultery away. You've got to put, put your lying away. You've got to put all your schemes of self-preservation away. You've got to put away all the things that you've been taught in this world of how to navigate in an evil world and how to survive in it and how to treat violence for violence. You've got to put it away if you want to be my disciple and live in a better way. If you want to live this radically transformed life that I live and that you are now called to, you got to put it away. That's what Jesus calls us for. You know, he doesn't say, you just never find him say, you, you do find him say, come and, and receive eternal life. You do say him come and, you know, get that gift. But there is nothing in his teachings that give any indication that he is content to give away eternal life and not to receive ultimate devotion in return. There is nothing in his teachings that indicate that he is okay with people taking his gift and then trashing it by how they live in the world. Nothing that indicates that he is okay with that. What he indicates throughout his teachings is that he expects the absolute best of humanity to be lived out daily by his disciples. That that's his expectation for us. May God help us, because we fall short. We all fall short of it, but we can only do it through his love and through his power. And may Jesus help us to take his teachings seriously and to apply them. Because just imagine applying, blessing those who bless you, doing good to those who hate you, praying for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, and how that changes what's in here. It changes what's in here, in your heart, and then it changes your spheres. As people see your example and learn that there is a different way to handle things. But I'm afraid that because our inputs are so much more of the word, Sorry, so much more of the world. Our inputs are so much more of the world and the world's way of handling everything. That when we're in those pressure situations, oftentimes the last thing we do is consider, what did Jesus teach me? And what that betrays is that the teachings of Jesus haven't become fully what we are yet. Because when we're fully like him, when it says here in verse 48, you shall be perfect, that really means complete, just as your Father in heaven is. That when we have the character of Jesus and we, you know, that results in the fruit of the Spirit, that when the things of life happen to us, if we really have his teachings embodied in who we are, we respond the way he's taught us to respond. Once we've fully matured, we'll respond the way that he's taught us how to, to respond. But I think what we have to do, though, if we want to get there to that place of maturity where that response comes naturally, we have to intentionally practice. 
we have to intentionally practice. And maybe it would be good, just with a friend, to say, we're going to play out scenarios. You know, I don't have to actually curse each other. I'm not asking you to do that. But, hey, somebody just cursed you. Now, what's your response? What's your response? Somebody just cursed you. And now, to practice saying the actual words that you would say that you need in that scenario. To practice it. To go through those scenarios. How do you prepare for anything? You know, I mean, we, I mean, coaching, there's a lot to learn from coaching. A lot to learn from coaching. And, you know, we just had a, a nice win. George, University of Georgia versus Florida. Nice win yesterday. Go dogs. But you know, when you see them do their walkthroughs, they walk slowly through the actions of where defenders are coming from, where you're supposed to block, where the hole is, where the runner is supposed to go. It's all practice out. Slower, faster, full speed, game speed, right? So that you know and that you get it. But yet we think that somehow somebody is going to become a follower of Jesus and just automatically learn how to do all this stuff. Like it just all just gets transferred in without doing the work to walk through, to talk about those different scenarios, to practice. And that's what discipleship is. To be prepared. So when those moments of life happen, we're not thrust in the situation for the very first time in our mind and hearts when we're tempted. Do I go toward the sin or do I walk away? We're not tempted with, do I respond in kind or do I speak the words of Jesus? You know, we, we would know and we would be ready. So examine as we go through these scenarios and say, how do I practice? How do I have those conversations with, you know, if if I'm a parent, how do I have those conversations with my kid where we go through those scenarios and I train them how to respond in a way that's going to honor God? And so what is it for your life that you need to practice because if we got to get it, because otherwise you know it it's just as much as I do. We end up in those same scenarios and we fail the same test. Well, until we do the work to be ready, those tests are going to keep coming. God's going to allow those tests to keep coming in our lives because he's got to teach us one way or another. So are you prepared for the next test? Are you preparing for the next test? It's coming. You live in a fallen world, so it's coming. Do you like it or not? May God help us to be ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that through your Son, you've given us how it's very concrete how you want us to live, what you want us to do. Lord, help us to understand, again, your Scripture fully. We wouldn't say, have it say more than it actually says, but certainly that we wouldn't have it say less. We would take your, your teachings and your words seriously, and you would help us to follow through. God, you know my heart, how my flesh, my flesh in almost at all times, 
will respond the right, the wrong way. But in the Spirit, Lord, there is life and there is goodness and there is the ability to have your character and to live how you want us to live in this world. So God, help us to live in the Spirit and not in the flesh. Give us your character. Character that you want us to have. We saw so clearly in your Son, Jesus. Jesus, help us to be like you. And as we take that bread and that cup, help us to remember that that opportunity for us did not come cheap. But you bought it with your very blood. So as we take that bread and that cup, please remove the junk from our minds and our hearts, all the dirt that we've gotten on our feet from walking around in this world, God, and refresh us this morning and cleanse us and help us to walk anew and afresh with you. Lord, in those scenarios when people are being ugly and mean and nasty in the world and and how they talk about others, how some of them talk about us, Lord, that we would not respond in kind. But Lord, help us to bless and to pray and to do good. Help us, dear Jesus, for your glory and honor. In your precious name we pray. Mm-hmm.